Welcome to this week's issue of the podcast. I'm delighted this week to be joined by Dr. Jackie Chimanzi. She is many things, but she is primarily, in terms of her professional responsibilities, CEO at the Africa Leadership Institute based in Johannesburg, but with students from across the continent. Jackie, welcome. Thank you very much, Marcus. You have been part of the journey that I've been on over the last six months in putting together this Stories Africa platform. For those of you in our audience who don't know, it's a collaboration between Africa Practice and the World Economic Forum's Leadership and Values Initiative. We've come together to try to promote and disseminate stories of inspiration and values-based leadership from across our continent. Jackie, you and your colleagues at the African Leadership Institute have been immensely helpful to us in this project. Let me publicly thank you. I know that you're doing some fantastic work at ALI, but for our audience's benefit, perhaps you could tell us more about ALI and the work that you're leading there and also what motivated you to join and lead this institution. Thanks, Marcus. So the African Leadership Institute was founded in 2006. The co-founders are Peter Wilson and Sean Lance. So Sean, at the time, was the CEO of GlaxoSmithKline. You will recall the big merger from SmithKline Beecham and Glaxo Welcome. So he led that whole merger. Peter Wilson was a consultant working with him, a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford. So as they reached retirement, they founded AFLI. So this was their way of giving back. So what they had observed during their careers was just the lack of effective leadership on the continent. So they decided to, to set up this program as a way of nurturing a new generation of young leaders who are ethical, who exhibit servant leadership, who are courageous, who are bold, who morality is at the center of it. And of course, these values are taken from Archbishop Tutu, who is our patron. So really, the program draws quite heavily on the Archbishop's values. So we are hoping really to nurture a critical mass of new leaders who will transform the continent. Great. And this issue of a deficit of good leadership on the African continent. It's, it was a key motivation, as you've just described, for your founders and setting up AFLI. Why is this? What's your view there? So when we look at African development challenges, whether it's healthcare, education, agriculture, food security, or rather food insecurity, infrastructure, all of these are really underpinned by one factor, leadership. So the fact that people talk about the shortage of leaders on the continent there is that perception because really Africa hasn't progressed nearly enough, right? So I understand why that perception exists, but I would choose to challenge it. I think it's a misconception. I think the leaders are there. I mean, I work with them. I see them every day. You know, they're doing brilliant work. They're transforming their sectors, using technology. They are disrupting education. They're disrupting healthcare. So, so the leaders are there. What I would say is the issue is that these young leaders are not operating where they should be operating. So what we actually see in Africa is a poor market deployment situation. We have a pool of resources outside of the place where they should be. And then our institutions are starved of these exceptional human capital because they're not where they should be. There's a mismatch on the supply and demand side. So I think the answer to that is how do we get more new leaders into institutions, into governance, in order to propel Africa forward. The way I would describe it is that these new leaders are operating on the periphery. I know it doesn't sound like a nice word because they're doing very important work, but as long as they're not at the center, I consider it the periphery. And as long as the center is not strong, all their efforts on the periphery in education, in healthcare, all their efforts are suboptimal, right? 
because if the policies are not right at the center, whatever they do is that much harder because of a lack of uh, enabling policies. So trying to fundraise for their solutions in healthcare is just that much harder because the center is not right. Perceptions of investors are also not very favorable. So their work is that much harder because they're not at the center. So I think one way to tackle that is how do we make sure that all these new leaders in various sectors, how do we bring them in to be part of governance, to be a part of policymaking as experts? Yes, I was speaking to a gentleman last week, in fact, who lectures on on ethics and leadership. He was telling me that one of the challenges that we have on the continent is weak institutions and poorly designed policy. And to the point that you just made, he pointed out to me that actually there's no shortage of good leaders on the continent. But the challenge we have is weakness of institutions and poor policy design. And therefore, without those two things, it becomes very hard, even for the best intentioned leaders, to achieve the sorts of reforms or changes that they like. But, but also the other issue, I'm not sure whether it's a cultural issue or patriarchy, or I'm not sure, but I, I just have a sense that our current leaders don't take young people seriously enough. You know, so, yeah. so these are young people. I mean, they're in their 40s, 30s. You know, they've gone to Harvard. They've gone to Oxford. They've, they've worked on Wall Street. They've got global exposure. They're fundraising in Silicon Valley, New York. They're very uh, savvy. They've got great ideas. But somehow our leaders just don't seem to take them seriously. I think maybe it's a cultural thing, a power distance. So if you're an 80-year-old president, you don't listen to a 35-year-old because really, what do they know? But the irony of it is these people got in when they were 35, 30, you know, very young. Yeah. But suddenly they're just hogging the space and they're not letting new ideas in, which is quite a shame. And it's not even as if young leaders want to take over. All young leaders are asking for is let's work together. Mm-hmm. This is our continent. Let's work together. And I really believe there's a magic that happens at the intersect of experience and new ideas. It's interesting to me how quickly you focused in on political leadership and made the distinction between the fact that we have a lot of great leaders, enterprising leaders, innovating in areas that you mentioned, education, healthcare, but that in the political realm, our continent is dominated by an older generation of non-progressives, if I can call them that. And I know that you've spent a lot of time close to politicians, not just in your own country, but on the continent. I've had the privilege of spending some time also with political leaders on the continent. My own impression is that it's not through an absence of, of desire to make changes, not through an absence in many respects of quite progressive thinking. But these leaders, in too many instances, almost become prisoners in their own palaces and starved of the sort of innovation and progressive thinking that you say abounds in some of the younger generation working in, to quote you, um, sort of on the periphery. Do you think about this and think about what's required to address that? What did you call it before, the, the perfect marriage there? I do think about it. In fact, we've just published a report recently where we make some recommendations for how we begin to address this. So from a supply and demand perspective, right? We see that young people want to make a difference. They want to help governments. However, the platforms that would allow them to make that contribution, those platforms don't exist. So what we did in this report, we proposed different mechanisms that different governments can put into place that would serve 
as platforms to bring young people into governance, right? So for example, why not have sort of an advisory council of young experts? So these young people can continue disrupting in education, in healthcare, in agriculture, but you you create a platform whereby they can help inform and shape government policy. I mean, these are the people on the ground, right? They're the coalface. They understand the issue. We've got young people setting up incubators. So they understand the challenges of entrepreneurs. They understand the challenges of accessing capital. Why do you not bring them in at the table so that they can help to co-create solutions? So I think there are different ways that it can be done. It doesn't mean that everybody must go into government because not everybody wants to be a politician. But I think there are ways to leverage expertise in the private sector by creating certain mechanisms. And I think it's, it's a win-win. I was impressed by the cohort of your um, students at AFLI who wrote an open letter to President Buhari just a few weeks ago in response to the NSARS movement, the, the protests, the peaceful protests that took place and the armed forces response shooting that took place in, in Lekki in Lagos. I was impressed because it was a very open, publicised communication, and they didn't pull any punches in reminding Nigeria's head of state that he was an elected official and a servant of the people of Nigeria, and that they expected a different form of leadership and a different response to the protests from, from the state. What was your own reaction to that? I imagine you felt immensely proud. Do you think it reflects more broadly what I perceived to be an intergenerational struggle and that you've just spoken about between youth who, who really do want to get on and help their countries get on and who feel that the, the older guard, and let's be honest, Buhari was president over three decades ago, I think last, first time round. this older guard who won't budge, who won't make room for the younger generation. Yeah, so, okay, I don't think he will appreciate being called a servant, <laughs> but but really, uh, but servant leadership is what is needed, yeah. right? Servant leadership is the essence of good leadership. It's, it should never be about yourself. It should be about the people you serve. I was immensely proud, just by the way that the, the fellows just self-mobilized, you know? It was actually a very proud moment, and, and, and I think it reflects the kind of culture we're trying to inculcate with the fellowship. We're trying yeah. to create a critical mass of young leaders who will transform the continent either individually or collectively. So what they did really speaks to the heart of the Tutu Fellowship spirit, which I try to encourage. But in this case, they self-mobilize themselves. Your comments about this being a broader intergenerational struggle beyond just Nigeria, I think is, is, is spot on. So like I said, the continent is the youngest in the world, yet we just don't see enough young people in governance, right? So, so there's a problem there. And this problem is threefold. So number one is just a lack of representation. Young people don't see people in governance, in leadership who look like them. Secondly, there's a problem of co-creation. So these leaders are currently not leveraging these young people, as we talked about, to co-create solutions. So they're actually doing themselves a disservice because these young people could help them co-create solutions to healthcare, to agriculture, to education, and make them look good. They can take the credit the young people can do all the work and they can take the credit, but they're not even doing that. The third one is a sustainability issue. So all of this current generation of leaders, they've set up Agenda 2063 at the African Union. They won't be here in 2063. So I think there needs to be an intentional process, a deliberate process of succession to begin to bring young people into these institutions so that they begin to understand how governance works to allow for seamless transition. 
And again, they're doing themselves a disservice. They've got Agenda 2063. They're not bringing young people in. So it means that it's almost doomed to fail, if that makes sense, because young people mm. don't understand how these institutions work. Young people don't understand ECOWAS or SADC or the EAC. They're just very removed and very divorced from the key institutions that drive Africa forward. They don't understand the AU at all. I mean, the AU is just a mystique. Young people mm. don't understand how it works at all. So, so really, to, to summarize, they're doing themselves a disservice. But I would say that the struggle, and I know you, we've said it's intergenerational, it's not mm. as simplistic as old leaders versus young leaders, because I'm sure there are also young leaders who are not ethical. So it's not that simplistic. So the way I like to define it is old leaders versus new leaders. So new leaders who could be old or young, but driven by a new paradigm, a new way of doing things, new ideas, new energy, new solutions to old problems. Yeah, so I think for me, new, better captures the young generation. But like I said, not all young people are necessarily ethical. So I'm more mm. interested in a new way of doing things. Yes, arguably, young people may be less ethical than generations that went before them. There are far few more temptations to behave or to compromise one's ethics or values than um, previous generations might have had. I want to talk to you about two things, because you, you mentioned earlier patriarchy and uh, our patriarchal societies. I live in Botswana, as you know. Not one female MP was returned to parliament at the last election. There were candidates, but the electorate preferred men over women. And the electorate, we must assume, is around 50% women. So women are voting for men. And by and large, they're voting for older men as well. This patriarchy problem that you referenced is a real problem, isn't it? And it is not just one amongst about the values that an older generation of male leaders has. It's actually the values held within society at large. These, these people at the top are representative of a broader societal perspective. It's a problem. Do you feel that enough is being done to address the, the gender imbalance in our politics specifically, but also the generational imbalance. My, I'm guessing from what you said earlier about the work that you're doing to address the generational imbalance, that the answer to that is no. But do you see progress on the gender front? Gosh, that's a very good question. So let me just highlight what I mean by patriarchal. And like you said, it relates both to gender and to age. But from an age perspective, I think African cultures, even in the home, you're the head of the household, you're the father of the house, whatever you say goes, you don't get questioned, you know, children only speak when spoken to. So I think that culture has really permeated everything we do in African societies. Mm. You go to school, the teacher walks in, everybody stands up, good morning, Mr. whatever the teacher's mm. name is. The teacher writes on the board, you copy everything down, you regurgitate it in your exams. Mm. And you don't differ from what the teacher wrote down because then you're challenging the teacher. So that kind of prescriptive behavior, prescriptive way of doing things, I think has also entered and affected the political arena because really politics exists within the context of cultures, right? Yeah. So then when we have all these dictators who don't want to be challenged, we shouldn't be surprised because that's how they've been raised. Yeah. The huge power distance. I don't know what the answer is. I mean, from a gender perspective, I know it's very difficult for women to get into the political space, the shaming, the name calling, and that still mm -hmm. happens in 2020. So we still have quite a long way to go. 
And in order to address the imbalance, both from a gender perspective and from an age perspective, I'm not sure whether quotas are the way to go, because I don't think we should be relying on goodwill to change societies and our governance systems. I think people must be forced to, to comply. It must be legislation, it must be policed, it must be enforced, it must be monitored. I think that's the only way to, to get change. You look at Rwanda, for example, with their, with their quotas for parliament. They've made real change. I mean, now Rwanda has the highest female representation in government in parliament, you know, because mm. of quotas. So I think that's where we need to be headed, because I don't think goodwill is going to get the results we require. And we need change, yeah. we need change fast, right? And really, if men are occupying these spaces, what's the incentive for them to change? It works well for them. So why would mm. they change? Mm. So that's my view. We need policing. We need enforcement. We need quotas, is your proposal. Yes. And even more recently, women on boards. You'd have seen mm. the announcement last week. Yes. So yeah. if America's doing it, can you imagine? <laughs> so if the so-called developed world is putting quotas in place, it just shows how dire the need is. I wanted to address values. You've referenced it a few times already in our conversation. And I touched on it a little bit earlier. We can't make the assumption that our youth are growing up with the appropriate values. It needs to be a deliberate effort to ensure that they are doing. It's really at the centre of, of good quality leadership. You can capacitate, you can make prescription, but at the end of the day, you've got to, you've got to be able to rely on the ethics and values of, of leadership their ability to make the right judgment call, make the right decisions in the best interests of, of the majority. You at some AFLI are, I'm sure, doing a lot in the area of helping your, your students who are the brightest and the best that the continent has to offer, but be really steep in ethics and values-based leadership development. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do there and what broader lessons there are for society and how we can ensure that this younger generation in particular grows up with the right values? I mean, there are, I pointed to it earlier, there are so many temptations for our youth to get rich quick, to find celebrity quickly. I know as a father, the um, draw that social media has and the promotion of lifestyles that it's, um, it, it's not not rooted in reality and nor is it healthy. Can you tell us a little bit about your views on these issues and specifically what you're doing at AFLI? Yeah, it's a great question. I really think values need to be a part of education curricula. Mm. Yeah, because it's just so important. And I know there was a big drive after the 2008 financial crisis. There were lots of discussions about mm. how does the world come right or the greed which has led to the breakdown of institutions. How do we inculcate right values? I think it needs to start early in schools. It needs to be part of curricula because we need to raise responsible citizens. So I think that's where it needs to start. and It needs to start early. Are you encouraged by the values and principles that you observe amongst youth and, and particularly amongst the, I, admittedly, it's, a, it's an elite that you have at AFLI, but are you encouraged by the sort of values and ethics that the younger generation are displaying? My own take is actually... By and large, it's better than the older generation. Well, we can point to Malala and her spirited promotion of girls and, and female rights or Greta Thunberg and her leadership on climate. There seems to be a pretty inspirational young generation of people who are rooted in good values, enough mm. certainly to inspire. Do you see enough examples of those amongst the cadre of students that, that you welcome at AFLI and, and more generally from your research and the work that you do? 
So when I look at millennials, I, I, I sort of see two camps. Mm. So there's the camp that you've talked about, the Malalas, the Gretas, who are very socially conscious, who are trying to make a difference. But I also see another camp, you know, the ones who want quick results, who want overnight fame, you don't really want to work for it, they're mm. entitled. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I know a lot of corporates are just complaining that, gosh, these millennials, just the entitlement not wanting to put the work in. And I know I'm not going to be popular for saying this, but a lot of people do struggle with millennials. Yeah, so, so I think those are the two camps that I see and they're very diametrically opposed, as you can see. I don't know, what are your thoughts on that? I've observed great differences and we're making generalizations here, of course, so mm-hmm. forgive us, the audience, but I've observed great differences between the different countries that I've had the privilege of traveling to over the last 20 mm-hmm. years on the African continent. I'm afraid to say that the country that you live in I've been really disappointed by the sorts of work ethic and values that I've seen from well-educated young people who have been seduced by the ability to buy a smart car with a bank loan and uh, frankly live beyond their means. Whereas in other societies, I see a very hardworking culture that dwarfs anything that I might have been exposed to even in, in Western Europe. You know, it's really very prolific and partly because... There's an urgency. People need to get on. There is no social welfare or social safety net. People are genuinely motivated to demonstrate their worth to an employer or to be productive for their family. So I think we have on the continent a broad spectrum. And so we certainly can't make generalizations about the continent. And we probably couldn't even make generalizations about a a country in just the way that I have. Just to add to that, we're also working on another project funded by the Ford Mm. Foundation, we're setting up a database of youth-led, youth-serving organizations in Africa. And that research has been really fascinating. And it's actually encouraged me. So mm. these are young people who set up organizations that serve other young people in, in various areas, whether it's healthcare or entrepreneurship. So these are volunteer organizations. These are very sort of grassroots type organizations. It's been so encouraging just to think yeah. that with the challenges of economies in different African countries, there are young people who find the time and the energy and the motivation to want to do something about their circumstances. It's, it's actually, it's been very heartwarming for me. So that's another camp. And I guess that's similar to the Malalas and the Greaters. These are young people trying to do something about the context within which they live by mm. serving other young people. So, so that's been very encouraging. So like you say, there, there are pockets and it's, it's very hard to generalize. And do you work on this at AFLI with your students? No, this is a separate project. Uh, it's yeah. funding from the Ford Foundation and it's for AFLI, it's not for the tutor fellowship. So it's separate from the fellowship. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But with regards to the fellowship, you asked me what I'm seeing there. It's a bit of an unfair question because really the fellows that we select have a predisposition to being mm. servant leaders. So mm. we pick people who have some track record of being good leaders. So our role at AFLI is not to make people leaders. Our role mm. is to take people who we think are leaders, but who would benefit from the experience of our program to take them to the next level of their leadership, if that makes sense. Yes. So, so it's unfair because we're already taking people who have demonstrated leadership capabilities, but we believe with the tools and methodologies of our program, we can harness that capability even more. Yeah. And the fellowship has means to probe people's ethics and values, do they? I'm saying this, and it's perhaps unfair on me, but my children are brought up as Catholics. 
And my family has been really challenged by what we've observed that has been well publicized in recent months in terms of various activities in the church. And these are people who we trusted. They were pillars of society. And so I've become rather cynical and made assumptions that you can't assume the ethics and values of anyone until proven otherwise. So I'm wondering what measures you take to probe those those ethics and values and be satisfied that these individuals, whilst they may be bright, whilst they may be able to Mm. command followers, or they're not necessarily grounded in the right moral values. It's it's a fantastic question. So what we have is we've got an ethics committee, and this ethics committee is not part of the fiduciary governance structure. This ethics committee is run by fellows to hold each other to account. So where a fellow is felt to have strayed from the values of the fellowship, they will be held to account by the ethics committee. There are numerous reasons for this, because we do have a set of values that we would like our fellows to abide by in their day-to-day work, but also they carry the archbishop's name, right? They are Tutu fellows. So we also have responsibility to maintain the dignity of his name. So that structure is intended for that purpose. Like you said, you you never know who people are, right? So we needed a mechanism whereby as issues arise, they can be held to account. And accountability is actually another key value within the Institute, because we're trying to avoid the current situation whereby African leaders just bond together. They don't call each other out. Bad things happen. They pat each other on the back. There's this boys club, right? And for some reason, it's just, (laughs) it hasn't served us well. So we are hoping that this new generation can have honest conversations, can call each other out, can hold each other accountable. That's what we're trying to inculcate. The Mo Ibrahim Index, that annual index of governance, this year recorded the first deterioration in governance standards on the continent for for 10 years since the index was started. As you were speaking then, and you talked about accountability, I was reminded about the African peer review mechanism and great fanfare around that soon after NEPAD was launched over a decade ago, perhaps a little longer. Not much on this conversation. I think that peer accountability is is woefully absent in the African context. Are we regressing? Yes, it would seem like we are regressing, which which, which is Mm. very unfortunate. So maybe just to come back to the fellowship. So what Mm. the fellows go through is a very intimate process. It's intimate. We invite them to be vulnerable. People cry. We've got a psychologist Mm. that they work with. So people are at their most vulnerable. It's a safe space. And we think that because of that methodology, they create very strong bonds. And I think this is why they're better able to hold each other accountable. So so in a way, the program is designed, speaks directly to the issue of being able to, to be accountable to each other. So they come into the program as strangers. They leave as family. In fact, they don't call each other fellows. They call each other family, the Tutu family. So the methodology is very central to our objectives. It's having a peer network, as you mentioned, a safe space or people with whom they can confide and who can serve as as collaborators, as sounding boards for their their careers. But also to hold each other to account as they grow in their leadership, right? Because as you make your way to Mm. the top, it gets more lonelier. As Mm. you said, the temptations become more. So it is our hope that the network can grow together and be the sounding board as they grow in their careers. And the, the network is from across the whole continent, isn't it? How many fellows are accepted annually? 
Gosh, it's a very slow and deliberate process. And I have mm-hmm. to say, I've got so much respect for the founders. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, and again, back to the intimacy thing, the intimacy is mm-hmm. a very core part of it, right? I mean, I look at some programs, they take 200 people over four days. We take 25 a year, 25 a year. So you can imagine 25 a year since uh, 2006, mm-hmm. we kind of around the 350 mark. Yeah. So, so I have such great admiration for their patience to curate such an intimate, high quality, exceptional program. It's, it's quite remarkable because the temptation can be just to churn out the numbers, right? But we would be compromising on the objectives, we'd be compromising on the experience as well. So we have about 350 from around 42 different countries from across different sectors. We've got business leaders, people in government, civic society in fairly high positions across the continent. Fabulous network. Jackie, I have one final question for you, if I may. Mm-hmm. We started this conversation by um, addressing the quality of leadership on the continent, whether it was factual that we had poor leadership or whether it was a misconception, merely a a perception that we did. It's an interesting issue because I think, as we discussed at the outset, there's an overwhelming perception, I'd say, everywhere, that we lack good leaders on the African continent. You've addressed that head on. You've pointed out that we have an abundance of good leaders Um, but they're not all occupied or very few in in public office or or senior um, political office. Having said that, on one hand, we've got some of the most renowned leaders who came from public office with a global stature, Madiba, Kofi Annan, Desmond Tutu in the way that you referenced. Does this interest you, this dichotomy? And how important is it, do you think, that this perception is redressed and rebalanced? You know, part of what we're trying to do with Stories Africa is to inspire, actually, to point out that there are abundant examples of great leadership on the continent, of progressive leaders, of people innovating in policy and in enterprise. How do you see the importance of this issue of of perception? So perception is reality, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, perceptions are very powerful. So I can see why there's the perception that Africa lacks effective leaders. I can see why that perception would be there. So in fact, we published a report two years ago called An Abundance of Young African Leaders, but No Seat at the Table. So I think that in itself just summarizes what the problem is. So they're there, they're not at the table. So the issue is how do we get them to sit at the table? But also what I think is really challenging is people don't really know who is in that next layer of leadership. So when you go to conferences, it's always the same people, right? Every conference, you know, World Bank, whatever, it's just the same people all the time, you know? So one of the things we're doing to address that issue is we're developing a new portal called newleaders.africa, where we're trying to profile that next layer of leaders, to raise their profile, to make sure they're discoverable, to make sure that people know who they are, to, to shine the spotlight on them. So that they may start getting the opportunities and come kind of coming to the fore. So the way I'd characterize this is that they're kind of two layers of leaders. So they're the ones, the usual suspects. Then there's that another level down. And that level, a tier down, is just struggling to kind of emerge, if, if that makes mm. sense. But they need to be given the space to speak at conferences, to provide new perspectives, you know, to get into government, into policy making, to sit on boards. There's a mm. critical mass of them. But I'm appealing to governments to begin to open up those spaces to let them in. 
And we have mm. made suggestions of the mechanism that they can use to, to start to bring them in and to leverage their talents because it, it's a win-win. We're trying to all co-create the Africa that we want to see. Well, on that note, Jackie Chinanzi, thanks so much for your time. It's been um, a real pleasure to speak with you and I've, I've learned a lot in the process. Thank you. Oh, great. Thank you so much, Marcus. I enjoyed that too. Thank you.